The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 177 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on oneouter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. And I've also been meaning to mention for the last few episodes, I finally got the show onto Stitch. A few people emailed in about that. I think the first person emailed in about four years ago asking if we could put it on Stitch. (coughs) And um, someone else sort of confirmed it like two years ago. And then like a third person asked a few weeks ago and Alex um, knew the person was like, please could you stick this on Stitch? So after that, you know, we'll take those three people as definitely let's get it on Stitch. So it's on Stitch now for those three and anybody else who wants it on Stitch and accesses their podcast that way. Is, is it called Stitch or Stitcher? I thought it was Stitcher. Yeah, Stitcher. You're right. Stitcher. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I hope that, you got that, it on the right <laughs> site. No, it's on Stitcher. Yeah, that's how much I, I read into it. I read enough into it to upload it and fiddle around in 20 minutes of my time oh, and get up. It is up on Stitcher. That is right. Um, <laughs> So that's how much I care about their their brand name and whatever. But no, I joking aside, actually, I looked at the site and it's quite cool because I do consume a lot of podcasts and things like that. And it seems like if, if I got it right, I put the app on to play around and make sure uh, my site was up. And it looks quite cool. Like you can, I obviously the name, hence the name Stitcher. Like just stitch a lot of podcasts together in your own little playlist, and it can just go through and play them that way through the app. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's quite good. It's probably for the non-iTunes crowd, I think, for Android people, I assume, because uh, I think you can create playlists and stuff in iTunes with various different podcasts, but maybe I'm wrong there. Oh, also, while I was playing around with all that, I noticed someone else left us a review on the iTunes site, so thanks very much for that. It was a positive review as well, so uh, a double-A thanks for that. And if anyone is listening and do have, like, three seconds to spare... When you're on iTunes next, please like leave us a review because it does make a difference. I saw this really popular podcast and it had like four reviews, like no one reviews on iTunes, but it does make a difference. And uh, so if you are on iTunes, please leave a review. Uh, Alex, all those house notes out the way. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good, Barry. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah, good. Um, I'm quite, quite chirpy. And, um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, yeah. The last few weeks, I mean, I was telling Alex, just to turn the turn the tone completely, um, a good friend of mine actually committed suicide a couple of weeks ago. 
Um, so oh, that's so, so weird. That, that's uh, you know that was sorry, to, sorry to, to change the tone completely, and then I'm just thinking, what is he going to say here? Yeah, but it's okay. I mean, uh, you know, he was a very good friend of 20 years ago, but we fell out countless times and spoke again, and then fell out again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he was certainly someone I respected, and um. Yeah, it, it was a suicide, and without going further into it for respect of, you know, his surviving family, um, he had battled for years and years with mental health problems and depression. So I've approached it and uh, talked about it on the show in my own sort of gallows humour way of laughing, you know, at these uh, sort of things. And it's, it's not even a shield or like a coping mechanism or whatever. It's just like... It really hit me, like, this guy went out on his way and he decided to do that, and after years of battling mental health, and I kind of say it and joke about it in case there is anyone listening that is experiencing mental health problems, and the scary thing is, it's like, this guy killed himself, and I don't know what I'm trying to say with this, but that day that I got told, I was driving down the road where Nira used to stay, it's like quite a popular road in my city, and it was like, you know, the sun's still out. The grass actually looked greener or something. You know, I was maybe just noticing things. And I was like, the world does go on. You think that it's like, I'm going to kill myself, you know, in all this ends. It's like, well, your life ends. The world goes on. And I can't remember who, we talked about this before, but you're making a bet that what's next, if there is anything next, it is better. It could be worse. You could be on your way to a billion years and purgatory or damnation or oblivion or you know or whatever or it might be a heavenly afterlife or there might be nothing so um if anyone is experiencing stuff like that i know i joke about things and stuff but you know that was tough i mean we hadn't been speaking the last couple of years so it was quite weird i was really shocked and saddened but not surprised because he Uh he talked about it for years to me and uh, he finally did it. So, um, you know, he, he can rest now. And we do, like, all the stuff that people say. But I get it. It's really applicable with him. I do hope he's, you know, he's at peace now. He wasn't happy for quite a few years that I knew mm-hmm. him. And uh, everything did seem like a struggle to the man. And, uh, yeah. So if anyone is experiencing that, before you go doing anything silly like that, um, go and seek some help. Speak with a friend or... Call the Samaritans. Uh, what's the suicide hotline in the states? Or I uh, seek help and speak to someone. And um, uh, things do usually pass. You know, I'm not trying to play down everyone's problems or whatever, but things will improve and get better. So yeah, um, good luck to you if you are struggling with things like that. But yeah, only the one dot com podcast and on the Ask Alex show can I change the tune to a suicide? Laugh about it. And then, uh, yeah, I hear you've got a summer sale as well, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> a spring sale, rather. Yeah, <laughs> it's like suicides and spring sales. That's the uh, that's going to be the the topic, uh, the title of the show. But um, no, joking aside, I mean it is hard. He's, his funeral was last Friday, and I saw the family and stuff. And yeah, it's it's weird. It was horrible, but. His sister uh, did a really good eulogy where she was, she went up and the first thing she said was like, I'm not going to be a hypocrite, you know, and said his name and he he was difficult to deal with and he fell out with me, you know, etc. And everyone in that room had their battles, but God, 
you know, it does sink in what what a tortured soul for years, you know, the guy's had. And, yeah, I do. Well, let's not dwell on it. I just, I do hope he's found well, peace. And, you know. Okay, uh, let me... By the way, okay, if you guys hear me laughing or Barry laughing, that's a nervous reaction because we're so horrified because we've had our battles with mental health, just so you guys know. Another thing I've learned from living in New York... New York has the darker humor as well, more like the United Kingdom, where whereas somebody from California wouldn't understand it as much. When you laugh at a joke in New York, often you're laughing at just how horrible something is. It, and just in the context of, wow, that was really out of place, I didn't expect that horrible of a thing to come out. Not in the sense of, you're laughing at the horrible deed, like, ha-ha, this guy committed suicide. Just the, wow, that was a terrific about-face Barry did there and just said on a completely unrelated note, by the way, I just, Barry, that was the worst non-sequitur we have ever had on OneOuter.com. You, you literally butted in three minutes into the show. Like on a completely unrelated note, suicide. I can't. Like there's that no was, good time to bring it in. Yeah. There is none. But that was. You're like, oh, by the way, everything's great. We have this on Stitcher. Okay, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, what? I'm sorry, Barry. That was the most horrible thing ever. Like, that was no. It was fine. He would have laughed as well. He, I, know he laughed. <laughs> I just was not expecting. Like you and I had talked about that privately, but I just assumed it wasn't going to come up on the show. Because Barry, by the way, guys, is a very rich personal life that you know nothing about. He talks about nothing on this show, right? As opposed to Americans like me who just will never shut up about their personal life. So. That blew me away that Barry brought that up. And if Barry is bringing this up, I'm going to keep talking like you're not here, Barry. But if you're bringing this up, I hope people realize it's because it deeply affects you. And it's because you want people to know they're not alone, right? Yeah, but also on that, I can see this now. Um, as I mentioned, we'd fallen out a few years ago and hadn't, you know, spoke since and He'd sent me a couple of text messages, and he actually, a couple of years ago, sort of reached, not reached out, but in his way, to try and communicate again. And I had to yeah. say to him, look, I, I couldn't have him in my life anymore. I mean, he was he was volatile, he was, uh, I thought he was a danger to other people, not just himself. And I had to think about my friends and family. I've got lots of brothers and sisters, you know, my fiance, etc. And... I genuinely thought he was... I knew, because he'd explicitly told me, he talked about, you know, killing himself, and uh, he talked about other things as well, and I just thought the way, you know, I'm a bit of a overthinker and, you know, maybe a, a worst-case scenario type of guy, you know, but I don't live like that. I still, I just, I take in the possibilities, and I just thought he was a, he was a danger. And it's funny because you mentioned there, that he, you know, the reason I don't talk about things on the show that, I've shared with Alex when we've been talking otherwise or other friends, etc., in card rooms and 
guys that listen to the show that know me from poker, etc. I've told quite a lot of stories, but it's funny. One of the reasons, and I discussed this with my fiance, the reasons that I don't talk about so much in my personal life is because I know this guy who's gone now listened to the odd episode and show for nosiness and to see what I was up to and things like that. So I was very cagey about what information I released or that because I didn't want him then either trying to, you know, it sounds, but he was, he'd done things in the past, like maybe sabotage things or try and turn up at things I was going to be at, etc. You know, and just, that was the right. type of guy he was. And that near the end, that was the type of relationship we had. I mean, I just wanted nothing, you know, to do with him. We, we sort of fell out and that was it. But... That that's just because you say that. That's one of the reasons, actually. You know that. Well, you uh, you just never know how your words are going to come off either, because yeah. there's. Uh, I actually just had this with my publisher, uh, DMB Publishing. I put, uh, I wrote, uh, I wrote in my new book. Like they're just going through the new book. You know. Yeah, you know the last book I was being a perfectionist. They sent me a rewrite and then I rewrote on top of that and I dragged out the process more than I should. They waited too long for it. Well, I didn't even know, you know, the guy wrote me an email this morning. He wrote like, we never rewrote your book. Like what I didn't, what I didn't know in, to be fair, he had every reason to be a, a little tiffed was it, I reread the section and just you you do the words a few wrong ways are you and it's really easy to do it while you're speaking and a rewrite I guess in publishing means you know like somebody else went through and like rewrote the entire book right when really all they did was edit it right so it made it sound like they did something they didn't do. I was just trying to say I was being a petulant child that was dragging out the publishing too long, and that's why I, I was so surprised when the book was so well-received, the first book, right? I was talking about the first book for a bit in the book, and I was all I was trying to get across was I was making D&B Publishing's job a lot harder and just by holding the book back consistently and saying I wanted to do more with it, eventually I had to be considerate to the fact that this was their business too, as courteous as they were being, and give the book out even though my perfectionist self wanted to keep holding on to it. And But just because you pick the wrong word, like, they, they you, you know, you <laughs> You end up saying something you don't want to say, and it's so hard in this business, too, when you're running through things and doing things so fast. Like, it's so easy to say the wrong thing. I completely understand why you are guarded like that now. I didn't get that when we first met, because I used to just blog everything and say everything, and I didn't really care, but now I really do want to make the right impression, and not just that, I, I want to be understood as a person and not put undue pressure on other people or say the wrong thing when I don't mean to. So I find myself in social situations withdrawing much more than I used to. I don't think you guys would ever recognize me at a party because I just, I, I'm much quieter than I used to be. When I play poker now, I don't really talk at all. Uh, 
I don't really keep a daily blog anymore. I used to, that blog is how you found out about me, right, Barry? Yeah. And I don't, I write in my journal every single day of my life, but I don't blog anymore because you don't know what's going to come off as what. And as you get older, I guess it goes into a minimalist mindset. I totally understand why you didn't want this guy in your life. It's not that you didn't care about him. I'm sure you cared about him, but your mental health has to come above all. And there's sometimes, even if the person is fine, which it sounds like this guy was going through some things, you introduce more and more variables to your life. Well, you're only human. You can only manage your emotions as you can only manage your emotions so well, your words so well, and your actions so well, your time so well, and you end up making mistakes. And if you have someone who's a little bit more volatile in the mix, who knows where that can go? It's not just that. I think even yourself, when you were blogging and stuff, you were younger. It was before your, you know your marriage and stuff as well and you're a single guy and the same thing for me when I was single and just doing whatever I, I didn't care it was just yourself you're looking out for and mm -hmm. as I got older I start to appreciate actually um, you know obviously my fiance I care about he turned up at things that she was doing and that but he was never nasty or volatile with her he was always polite etc but it was Sometimes he was doing that because I knew, uh, he knew, sorry, that she would say, oh, you know, he was in today and said hi or whatever, and it would get back to me. And then obviously brothers and sisters and stuff as well. You, got, I think as you get older, you start thinking about, it's more other people, you know, and bringing mm. people like that. I've had volatile people, you know, in my life uh, since a young age, you know, through things. And I've always been, you know, I was 16, 17 year old. I was going around with, 30, guys in their 30s, early 40s who were in business and stuff and uh, some mm -hmm. crazy characters and that was all part of it I enjoyed all that and the people I met and the experiences I lived through all that stuff, you know, it was great but I do, I think as you get older and things like that and you kind of want a little bit more settled and sort of quieter, you know, existence almost, you do start just trying to cut out things like that from your life because um, well, it wasn't productive. Yeah, exactly. And this is officially the weirdest one-outer episode ever, by the way, Barry. No, I, I think we'd find weird, though. I genuinely do, if we went back. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Just so you guys... I know at the beginning it sounds like Barry and I were making light of the situation. That's a PTSD symptom. Uh, I've seen a suicide attempt, like actually stopped a suicide attempt. So if you heard me laughing, it's because inwardly I'm horrified and kind of going back to that time. And it's, it's just amazing as you get older, Barry. It's like when you're a kid, you're so carefree, and then you get older, there's so much more baggage, and like it, things get so much more complicated with people. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like when you're 16 or when you're single, you, you well, you haven't even experienced anything, right? So you're not afraid of anything. And then you get to 
you know, you and I are both in our thirties now, and I, I guess just wheeling and dealing, moving about the earth, right? You end up you end up becoming a little bit more gun shy, right? You become yeah. a little. I, I I think volatility when you're younger is exciting, you know, yeah. excitement. <laughs> And as you get older, I mean, I embrace volatility and risk and stuff when it comes to making money and investments and trying things, etc. in business. But when it comes to personal relationships, I can't stand volatility now. I really right. can't. I've, I've very little time for that. And uh, I've cut off a lot of older friends that I used to go around with who were just, you know, a bit of trouble or wasters or whatever. But I used to have a laugh with them and so I just... There's none of that now. I just cut it out. It's you know they're they're not in my life, and I don't hear from them, and they don't hear from me, and that and that's good. But um, yeah, I do. I think when you're younger, everyone goes through it. It's, it's exciting, all that the drama, you know. I think hit a certain age, and it's, I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's a certain set in life, like a circumstances when when you are a bit more settled and you're a bit more you know, feet up and wanting a little bit of a quieter life and stuff. And I, I mean from drama. I don't mean from excitement or from right. uh, risk or whatever. I mean from real, you know, which could be actually when you analyse it, it's a bit dangerous, some of it, you know, and you're like, I, I kind of don't want to take that in my life because very little can come from that positive, you know. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, well, he a, killed himself, and sorry, he said for sorry. years he was going to do it, and uh, he did it, and that, that, that's it. You know, there's there's nothing else. There's nothing anyone could have said to stop that. There's nothing anyone... Uh, maybe he could have been stopped, you know, if, if on that day he told you or whatever, and you did it. But, you know, what happens in the UK is they get, which you know, sectioned for 30 days under the Mental Health Act and put in, you know, under supervision in a hospital, and... He could have done it there, which would have been a sad, sad way for uh -huh. him to do it. Or he might have got out and had another couple of months and then did it again or did something stupid or whatever. You know, it's 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 a real hard one. And I just, I feel for his kids and uh, oh. the rest of the family and his friends. And um, yeah, there's there's nothing there's nothing else to really say on that. But other than we've re-emphasized at the start that if anyone's listening, I'm not saying, you know, God, if you're not suicidal, you will be after listening to this episode. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, it's like, if you are feeling even, you know, a little bit dark thoughts or depressed or a little bit mood low and stuff, it's like, yeah, just talk to someone who you've got to talk to. And everyone's got someone to talk to. And even if you think you don't, you probably do. And even if you really don't, you live somewhere or you're isolated completely, um, there are people out there. A certain, even like online now, I think there's things you can tweet people or phone people and they'll phone you back and chat with you and you don't have to leave your real name. And you can talk about anything. And I actually think, going back to my friend, he was medicated for many years um, from his doctor and you know how to deal with his depression and his other mental health issues and I actually think what he needed was more talk therapy I do I think he needed a proper good psychiatrist who could spend you know a few years with him going through the whole lot of his life a lot of it was life events and things and 
I do. I, I he wasn't an advert for medication in in dealing with it because he started you know things like that and it's. I think talk therapy is what you needed. And say, even not talking to a trained psychiatrist, just talking with someone, it is amazing how cathartic that can be and help people, you know, with stuff. Because when you're in your own head and that's all, it's just you in your own head the whole time. It's a really bad negative feedback loop of just doom and talking it through. And there seems like there's no way out. Well, of course there's not because you're only discussing it with yourself. You go and speak with another person. That other person can say something that seems so insignificant to them, but can like change someone's whole perspective in life. So definitely, like, go and talk to someone if you are feeling like that. I mean, that's the sort of I know I joked about it and whatever, but if there is a public service announcement and any sort of good that can come out from my friend's death, then it is maybe someone listening to this or someone listening to this knows someone that's down a bit. And they go and talk to them or something. So, yeah, hopefully something good comes from it. If I could say one thing before we go into poker question. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you guys for bearing with us through this. Uh, as Barry said, talk therapy is what this person needed. And it's what many people need uh, who struggle with depression, I think. This podcast can be very cathartic for Barry and I as well. So we really appreciate you being with us on this podcast. But the, the other thing I, I wanted to say was, sorry, it's, it's kind of hard to talk about, which is just, I had a guy in Baltimore stop me. I don't know if he wants me to use his name. But he said he had lost weight and been healthier because you and I had been talking about it, Barry. And I never really felt like much use to anyone when I was just a poker player. I felt like a very self-serving individual. I, did, I didn't do much for anyone. And since we're tribal creatures, we want to help with the group in some way. And that really did make me feel as if what we do has meaning. And that was really important to me. And I, I think we all just heard Barry like really bear himself as much as he can, as guarded as males can be, right? And I, I want you guys to know, I know a lot of you guys listen to me and you, got, you think like, wow, this guy knows a lot about poker. It's really cool what he's done or the fact he traveled or any of that. I I have been suicidal before. I take antidepressants every day of my life. I a lot of the things Barry is talking about I I've had to do. And I don't think people talk about it because you're seen by some people who I don't really care for as primitive, uh as not developed or weak because you struggle with this, but yeah, I take antidepressants every day. Uh, when you guys hear me talking about exercise or diet, that's nine-tenths of that is because of my mood. Uh, I, If I eat like crap, if I drink alcohol, if I smoke weed, like, by the way, I like junk food. I like uh, alcohol. I can't do any of that because it makes me depressed, and I'm clinically depressed. Uh, I exercise a ton because it naturally 
heals that. And now something I'm learning is if you sleep eight hours a night, that helps you quite a bit as well. It, it's, and just, everybody deals with it. And the, the other thing I've found out ever since talking about this publicly, Barry, is so many people come up to me and they go, I, I did, it's the same thing every day, man, for me. It's the same thing. I have to go through it. Or a lot of people saying, you know, it's really good you and Barry talk about this because it's hard. It's, it's, the, the thing you said about talk therapy, it's so important, but it's so hard to do, right? It's just, they, as men, men never want to talk, like, period. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they just don't want to do it. So, yeah, uh, if you guys are, you know, if you guys are struggling, man, like, it's, I mean, you can write me. Alex at PokerEdrush.com. I'll, you know, it usually takes me a few days, but yeah, man, uh, we appreciate you guys listening to this podcast. And uh, yeah, if you heard Barry and I taking that lightly, it's honestly because it probably horrifies us so much and it's a nervous reaction. And I definitely have that reaction because it's just, it's something so close to me. So yeah, anyways, let's do some poker questions now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's mean. Nothing in the will, so that's another story. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's another grievance. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, let, let's get into the questions. Um, okay, this one is from AJ, who emails in. Alex, um, it's me, your senior citizen student. I hope this finds you and your family well. I continue to study your material and I'm getting better at poker albeit at a much slower pace than I want my one question for you and maybe you can address this sometime in your emails to us I'm a good poker player but great players know how to get away from a hand and I struggle laying down a set of kings when I get check raised on the turn any insight into how to get better with that part of my game would be very helpful uh Hey, AJ, thank you for your question. Uh, something that really helps me, well, I, people talk about this a lot, but I find if you actually make yourself focus on this while you play, you'll uh, do much better, which is every time you're facing a check raise, anytime you're facing a raise of any sort, just list the hands that you beat. And something that's really interesting is... If all you can beat is an absolute bluff, try to give... Uh, I, I always used to have that as a very murky part of my range, and I didn't think I handled it that well because I wasn't counting combinations in any real sense. I just said, like, or an absolute bluff, and that was this uh, blob of maybe that's 5% of the time, the 40% of the time. But if you think about the big bluffs you've seen... Nine times out of ten, it's a misdraw. It's something, it, it, it strikes us so profoundly when somebody just has like a seven on a king ten eight board and they somehow got to the turn and check raise because it's so odd. Usually if we see a bluff at that point, it's, uh, it's a draw, it's a misdraw that got converted on the river. So, if you want to estimate how many bluffs the person has, I think it's really good to count all the draws. And the other thing that's really good is to 
if it's an advanced opponent, count how many pairs could be converted converted into a bluff. So that would be third pair or something along those lines. Uh, that being said, most people don't at your levels and my levels, AJ, quite frankly, most people don't know that they can convert pairs into bluffs. So all you really need to do is convert the draws uh, or count the draws. And what you'll end up finding, because there's only four uh excuse me, Uh, if there's, say, a suited connector that would make a straight draw, right, is all the person would play. Let's say that person would only raise from the cutoff like jack-9 suited but not jack-9 offsuit. So you're counting that draw on the 10-8 board. That's only four combinations. If you're counting nut flush draws that converted to a... Uh, a bluff, or even just all flush draws, it's only uh, 15, 20 combos, where if you count all the pairs, it's usually going to be 50, 60, 70 combos, and that's before you get to the sets and everything else. So what you generally find when you try to do the combinatorics for this, even even in a very rough fashion, what you tend to find is that it's really hard to give a person that many bluffs, but it's usually pretty easy to give them really solid hands. And I think what we're talking about here, AJ, is I'm not being, I don't think I'm being melodramatic here when I say I, I think it's the focus of all of poker. Like, if you can master this, you'll be good at poker, which is, we've talked about this a little bit in the last episode, which is your poker investments, which is, I think the only talent I ever had when I was younger is I just knew how to fold. That was it. And that doesn't sound like much, but I... I think the only reason I could fold was because, you know, I was going back to my kind of, you know, not not a bad place, but just like a simple apartment or whatever, or I just didn't have a ton of money. And what would end up happening is if, like, let's say I bet, like, top pair, top kicker on the turn and the person check raised me, it's very rare at a card room to see somebody fold top pair, top kicker to a turn check raise. Like, you just don't see that. At the very least, they'll go, okay, I'm going to call the turn and see what he does on the river, right? And then the river jam comes and they convince themselves into a call. And I think the only skill I ever had when I was younger because I was really a lot less talented than the other professional poker players I knew in my teens uh, was... I would get check raised there and I, I would just go, I have no idea what to do. And I would pout and I would scream and I would cry, but I would fold. And I, I the only reason I think I folded there is because I was so broke. I, I just didn't want to lose more money. And if I was going home to uh, a nice, you know, suburban home that my parents paid for, and a four-year paid vacation at university and uh, the Honda Accord my parents paid for. I I don't know if I would have had that discipline. I highly doubt I would have ever made it as a pro because I didn't realize this until really a decade later, but there's so many investments in poker that are very difficult to be unprofitable. 
and those are your bread and butter bets. Like if you raise with five seven suited under the gun, that's a pretty bad open. Why? Because so many people can three bet you. But if you were in a strange game where people couldn't three bet you, you're you're going to make money. Because even if the whole table calls you, there's so much money in this pot, and you're going to hit a decent enough hand a high enough percentage of the time, you'll make money. This same thing applies if four people call you. Three people call you, now you can bluff a little more. Uh, or excuse me, if, two pe- if just two people call you. If one person calls you, you can bluff a lot. If everybody folds, you make money. So if you do an open and you're reasonably sure nobody's going to three bet you, you'll make money. So obviously the most simple application of this is when you open the button. When you open the button and you have two people out of position, only two people out of position that could three bet you, well, it's really not likely to happen. One, why? Because there's only two of them. Two, they're out of position. People don't like blowing up the pot out of position. Therefore, you usually make money. If you're on the cutoff and you know the button is a bit of a rock or Maybe he's motioning like he's going to fold his hand or he looks extremely disinterested or very interested in the masters on TV. It's very likely you just moved to the button. And the only way I survived as a pro when I was younger, because I was dumb as a box of rocks back then, uh, was all I did was like I would only open the hijack if I was pretty sure the the cutoff and the button were going to fold. I would only open the cut off if I knew the button was really likely to fold and I would see bet because most of the time a C bet is profitable. Uh, people generally fold their high cards on the flop, which means they're folding about 50% of the time. And so even if you do a monstrous bet, like 75% of the pot, uh, so that needs to work roughly 43% of the time, you'll still make a profit. And Three bets are a lot like opening. If nobody four bets you, generally you make money as long as the person you're three betting is opening way too many hands and is out of position. And if you just focus on those investments, opening, three betting correctly, and C betting correctly, you'll make a lot of money at poker. Now, obviously, you will have to play quite a bit to get yourself in this many situations, but the only thing that that will destroy this is if, let me back this up just a little bit. I I want you to understand what I'm saying, why it's so powerful. That I I know you guys hear me say those 50% numbers and, you know, they roughly fold 50% of the time and that is an absolute bluff, works 43% of the time. I want you to imagine a hypothetical. I want you to understand how powerful that is. I want you to imagine a hypothetical where you're in the small blind and in the big blind is a player that literally only flats with aces. So you raise from the small blind 2.5x to win the 2.5x in the middle of the pot. Uh, So your bet needs to work 50% of the time. It literally works 99.5% of the time. And the second you fold your hand or he folds his hand, the same thing gets dealt again. Small blind, big blind, you're in the small blind again, you can raise to 3x again, and he's going to fold. Now, as you can imagine, you just have a cash machine, right? Now, let's say you raise, and he calls from the big blind. If you just muck your hand at that point, like you don't even decide to look at the flop, have you still made money on the hand? The answer is yes. 
because your profit over a long enough time frame, obviously, if you can keep running this situation, you're going to be massively profitable. It doesn't matter if you would have flopped quads on the flop and you just check folded. These two investments are not connected. We think they're connected because they share a hand. They're not connected. So what we need to be focused, when you play poker, all that's going on, all a professional player is doing is a variation of what I just discussed. The first investment, right? It needs to work this percentage of the time. It works this percentage of the time. The margins run much closer. It's far more complicated when you add more cards into the mix. But with Flopzilla and a calculator, a $5 calculator from the drugstore, you can learn how to do this. Why people don't focus on it as a means to get out of poverty is confusing to me, to say the least, because I, I didn't, once somebody finally taught it to me the right way, I thought it was fairly simple. It was fairly simple arithmetic, but uh, I think we just, the humans are fooled because both of these investments share a hand. And I, I think it's really hard to lose your money and still say, okay, that was a profitable situation. Now, if you think about focusing on these investments, you become kind of like a, I don't know, a Ray Dalio or Warren Buffett at the poker table, right? You focus on very low risk, low return bets. Now, if Warren Buffett tomorrow said, I don't know what's going in, if Warren Buffett tomorrow said, I don't know what's going on with crypto, so I'm going to invest my entire portfolio on it, you'd probably think he went senile. Yet, I hear you guys say a variation of this at the table all the time, which is, well, I had 10s and I 3-bet with less than 35 big blinds. What was I supposed to do? I had two pair. What was I supposed to do? What you're communicating to me when you shrug before you call all in uh, is what you're telling me when you grimace but still stick your chips in is I have no idea what's going on, so I'm wagering all of my money, which is the exact equivalent of I don't know what's going on with crypto, so I'm investing all of my money. I found once I started looking at it from this angle, I became a much better poker player. You cannot play great no limit hold'em until you learn how to make big folds. Every time I go deep in a poker tournament, in WPT Prague, I think I bet folded, uh, I want to say, an overpair. Yeah, like a really big overpair, probably twice. Uh, in uh, it, pretty much every tournament I'm thinking of, the WPT I went, ran really deep in in Montreal. I think there was a top two pair I bet folded. Uh, generally... If I can't come up with that many combinations that I'm beating and I don't know what's going on, yeah, there's a really good chance I'm making a big fold, but it doesn't matter because if I just keep grinding people out with effective raises and things like that, I'm usually going to do much better than I deserve to. This has really become much more profound lately with the advanced raise sizes. If you make it 3.5x, for example, a lot of times people won't 3-bet you, period, but the big blind will call you and then just check fold most boards. That's a home run. 
five big blinds, six big blinds is handed to you, that's like getting dealt the expectation of kings. I mean, that's just like being given the expectation of kings with no variance. If you three-bet somebody and they just call yeah, yeah. you out of position, on average, you're making a couple big blinds. That's I'm still on. like getting ace-king suited with no variance. And I just... I teach people to grind out those small edges again and again, I, and it works across the board. I'm still on bet. Uh, country to country. Because people like to open too much, flat three bets out of position, and flat from the big blind and check fold the flop. And if you can focus on that, I'm convinced you will make money at no limit hold'em. But you have to remember these words. I want you to imagine Warren Buffett in one of his suits saying, I don't know what's going on with cryptocurrency, so I'm putting all my portfolio in it. And that's the exact same thing you're doing. When you don't know what you're beating, you have a very strong hand, and you just put your money in. That being said, top set of kings. I don't know if I can fold that. Could you fold that, Barry? Mm, yeah, I, I could in the right uh, situation. Yeah, right. Yeah, for <laughs> yeah it eight. depends on the board. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if there's a flush there or even a straight and it's the right player. Yeah, I, I bet fold sets all the time. It's so annoying. It's like, well, he'll only raise on this rep river if he has the flush, right? <laughs> yeah. how, how do you have that exact hand? You know, you become the petulant poker player. Like, why don't I get to win the pot? I'm special. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. But also, I think if you're folding that too many times, I think you're maybe being a bit too conservative as well. Um, yeah, exactly. Look, you know what, I don't... Well, I guess the senior citizens I do have to worry about that with. But if I ever hear somebody under the age of 40 saying, I don't know if I should have folded there, I always think, you know what, you're young and dumb just like me. If you probably thought maybe it was a fold, it was probably really a fold. But, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Okay, uh, this one is from G, who's emailed in a few times. Uh, mm. Nice to hear from you again, G. Hey, Alex, as I told you in my in my games, 3.5x uh, pre-flop raises work a lot. I think it's because people are not used to it anymore and they do not have the right counter strategy. By the way, is 3-bet in the right counter strategy? Calling can be quite expensive. Otherwise, if you call and outplay villain, you can win more in comparison to calling min raises. And Gus Hansen called a lot of 4x pre-flop raises successfully in every hand revealed. And before making a mistake, they think, oh crap, that's oddballing, I fold. Um, by the way, Phil Helmuth once teached once taught a WSOP main event final table finalist and he recommended them to raise five times pre-flop and that was his strategy when he won WSOP Europe main event 2012 also donk betting works a lot in my games because villain doesn't know how to handle with it and they either fold or overplay their mediocre starting hands by raising so I should put more and more in uncomfortable situations that's why I'm asking you are there any other perhaps actually outdated moves you can put people in uncomfortable spots with, things you can use on PokerStars small stakes or WSOP Baltimore. So that was obviously pre-Alex's uh, Baltimore trip. Perhaps, right. thing, perhaps things like floating out of position, suck a bet to induce action, check raising the devil, like haha. So there you go. By, by the way, just because I know many of you are listening with bated breath, I did not win WSOPC Baltimore. I, I, I'm not walking around with my circuit ring that I'm flashing at everybody in Long Island City. But 
Yeah, uh, as far as dated moves that still work pretty well, well, let's focus on that. Actually, the oversized raise works has worked historically really well. I thought it was really interesting when everybody was super critical of Jerry Yang at his final table. And I said, you know, if you watch Stu Unger, or I don't actually, I don't think I made this point. I think Barry Greenstein said we should look into this. And then I looked at it and then I realized, yeah, Stu Unger at his final tables used to raise to bizarre amounts all the time and nobody would know what to do and they just folded everything. And Jerry Yang does it and wins the main event and everybody wants to give him a hard time. But not that I was enthralled with Jerry Yang's play, but if he didn't perceive himself to be the greatest player at that table, I thought it was pretty brilliant just to keep going, let's play, boys, and putting a big raise out there. Uh, once he did get his double up. But that being said, I think the play that you're looking for here is the overbet on the turn. Something you used to see all the time was the board would come something like eight of diamonds, four of diamonds, three of spades. The big blind would have called the cutoffs open. The big blind checks the cutoff C-bets with his kings or whatever it is, in the big blind calls. The turn is the ten of clubs, the big blind checks, and you would see the cutoff just overbet like two times the size of the pot constantly. And he would do that because I don't want you outdrawing me, right? Now, the thing being, since everybody has seen this bet as an overpair for the last ten years, they have a subconscious bias to believe it's an overpair. So... If you ever bet on one of those boards and you believe the person would have check raised with a set, check raised with two pair, three bet preflop with an over pair, you can overbet pretty successfully on that turn. If you bet 1.5x pot, everybody's going to look at it as if it's the most absurd bet in the world when really it only needs to work about 60% of the time, which means your opponent needs to defend with four out of ten hands. Now, I don't know about you, but when the average person bets 1.5x pot into me, uh, when I'm out of position with a solitary pair, I usually end up folding because usually it's some guy with an overpair. It's some guy trying to, uh, it's usually some guy uh, tr- trying to uh, defend himself from the flush draw. Now, As far as 3.5x, you asked if the appropriate strategy is to 3-bet. Well, a lot of my practitioners of my strategy do that raise because they believe nobody's 3-betting it light. So, yes, if you 3-bet that light, people are going to believe you have the hand. And 3-betting to like 10.5x there is really beneficial for you because if the guy ends up raising his entire range there and then folding his 3.5x, that's a knockout punch. The three bet is very difficult versus this play. Now, that being said, if somebody does this to you twice, like usually, okay, you think he's bluffing you a lot, that's, you're out 7x, or you just want a huge pot because you happen to have a big hand and they three bet you very large. Um, 
what ends up happening is you can just go ahead and fold there and wait for a table change. That actually happens a lot quicker. And when you do pick up a big hand that you're fine getting it in with, you just open up big and then get a really big three bet and make a ton of money off the hand. So there's a lot of times I get exposed with the 3.5x or people see me open with 3.5x and they just don't believe it the first time. And then I have to sit there and wait for a hand. But when I do get a hand and I get one of these over-eager guys to 3-bet me, I end up making a bucket of money, which I'm pretty fine with. And, yeah, I think I covered both questions. Good luck, EG. Okay. And that's all we have time for this week. Alex, I know off-air we were talking about things, and you said that you got some offers and stuff for spring springtime sale for people coming up. If you want to tell people about that and also how they can get in touch with you for any of your other products, please. Yeah, check out the couple of videos that Barry is going to post in the liner notes there. Uh, they're just going to be the same videos that we posted last week, but one of them was a free download that was exclusive just to one-hour listeners and my email subscribers. It's not going up on YouTube. And... Yeah, if you guys like what you see, my spring sale is going on right now. It, every product is 50 to 75% off. It ends on May 15th, so you have uh, about five days to check everything out. And yeah, it, a lot of people have really enjoyed the products. I think I make a different type of poker product. It's much more tailored to the games you guys are actually playing as opposed to high stakes, okay, Let's balance this out so nobody could ever possibly exploit me. It's, let's, let's make sure we exploit people as much as humanly possible because they're probably not paying attention to you. Uh, Master Tournament Poker in One Class, which was really popular, is on sale there. Master the Flop is on sale. Test Your Poker, which is, I think, 10 hours of poker quizzes, is on sale. Uh, dissecting the Dog Bet, that's a check raise school. Master poker in one hour a day. All that stuff is on sale. Be sure to check it out. And guys, it's the last one of these sales I did was literally back in August of last year. So you do want to make sure you jump on this. Uh, yeah. So I hope you guys find something you like. And thank you for supporting Barry. And thank you for supporting this podcast and supporting us. Yeah, I agree. And also, I'm going to get stuck into Alex's materials as well, because I'm going to Vegas next month, and last time I went two years ago, I only played a handful of cash games, because I was with my fiancé, but this time I'm travelling solo for 12 nights, so it's going to be a lot more poker this time, tournaments and cash games, so I'm hoping to, I was joking with Alex, I said it'll be 12 nights unless I get a big score, then I'll extend it, so <laughs> it, it will be 12 nights, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to it, I'm really looking forward to it this time, last time I went on my own to Vegas was like two weeks, and I think I've talked about it before on the show, after 10, 11 nights, after 10 nights I think, I was like, oh, I just want to get home, and I had four nights to kill, and I kind of... You know, I don't know what that was. I was a little bit homesick or something. I don't know. I never thought I'd ever be like that. You know, with the but it was very samey, samey, and I'd also yeah. done quite well, so I was happy. You know, and that, and I couldn't really be bothered getting into the tournaments again and doing that. So I was just, <laughs> I was kind of killing time to just get out of town with what I'd made. You know, I'd done quite well, 
right. this time I'm going to go and just relax and turn it into just a, you know, be very grateful that I'm there again and I'm staying in great hotels, you know, this time and back at the Bellagio and stuff. I got all that comp through my... I'll talk about that on another show because it'll be quite interesting for especially international listeners that are going to Vegas. Uh, maybe some tips for you in terms of travel and stuff. So, um, yeah, looking forward to it. So I'm going to myself get on some of Alex's materials and uh, cram for a couple of weeks so that I go with some, some more info in my in my skull. Um, although I do learn a lot from osmosis. I mean, it's I, I do think a lot of it's drilled into me from all the shows we've done, and I, I, I listen to it, but... Uh, don't don't quiz me on anything. It's it's there somewhere. It's like Luke when he takes off his mask, you know, uh, to shoot the Death Star down. I kind of just, you know, it's there. It's in my it's in my subconscious. It's in my subconscious. <laughs> at yeah. least part at least parts of it are. But no, I'm going to study some stuff and drill some things down, and uh, we'll see how it goes. And uh, the podcast will still be going up every week. We'll still have the episodes all done and ready to go. And I'll keep everyone posted um, how how I do out there when I go out there next month. Um, Alex, thanks again for answering the questions and putting up those great offers for the listeners. And I noticed that what you guys were giving out free last week as well, the download, it's like a full webinar. So, oh, yeah, um, full yeah. hour episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that'll be up again in the show notes on com of this podcast, episode 177, so check that out and the link will still be there. Alex, thanks again. Keep your questions coming in. Questions at oneouter.com and we will get them read out on a following show. And we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.